This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. To some degree, my talk title is misleading. Because by saying, I am not my passions, you might think that I'm going to be discussing the relationship between our personal identity and our passions. That's not exactly what I'm going to be doing, although there is some way in which the talk is going to touch upon that. Instead, what I'm going to be addressing is the relationship between our passions and our happiness. And it's because of the connection with happiness that, we, that it often touches upon the idea of identity. For today, we often wrap up ideas of happiness with our notions of self. But now to begin, I want to point, uh, begin with a point that Sister made last night, which is that she reminded us that for St. Thomas and for Aristotle, there is no such thing as a passion devoid of intelligence in human beings. Whereas non-human animals can have passions and emotions that are not subject to reason because they don't have reason. So humans have, um, humans have passions, but all of them are wrapped up to some degree with our intellect, with our reason. Um, the, the kind of overlap there or the control that reason might have over the passions or the control that the passions might have over reason depends on the greater or lesser extent to which we have grown in virtue. Now, my, both of my talks this morning are going to be focused on the relationship between our passions and our reason um, and how that's related to happiness. Um, and the views that I'm going to be looking at today have their origins in antiquity, but also have successors that influence us today, though they are, of course, developed in slightly different. And so I'd like to address both ancient and modern versions of these with an emphasis more on the modern ideas. So we will look at two errors in these two talks. The conference I'm beginning now, I will address a view that makes our passions and emotional stability to be central to our happiness um, with our reason subservient to that. And then in the next conference, I will address a view that tends to exclude our passions from happiness and just focus on what reason affirms and denies. So with that in mind, I want to turn then to looking at the notion of happiness and that when we pursue happiness, you know, we often look for indications. How am I going to know that I am happy? What are the marks of happiness? And one of the important marks or indications of happiness is a sense of peace, right? Presumably, when we're happy, we're going to be at peace, if not with the world, at least with ourselves. And so <clears throat> it's natural to associate the experience of peace as a sign that we have happiness, or at least have a taste of happiness. And this idea of peace is naturally enough related to, we relate to our passions and our emotions. You know, in his commentary on John uh, chapter 14, verse 27, St. Thomas talks about peace. And he reminds us that the definition of peace that he's working with is as a tranquility of order, a tranquility of order. 
And so he remarks that this tranquility of order uh, includes a proper ordering of our passions in relationship to our intellect and to our will. And then he's building upon a more expansive description of what peace is in St. Augustine, who says that peace is a calmness of mind, a tranquility of soul, a simplicity of heart, a bond of love, and a fellowship of charity. And so if we look at the pieces of this definition, we see the calmness of mind probably refers to a ordering of our reason, which should be free and not tied down, nor, absor nor absorbed by disordered affections. The tranquility of soul that he talks about refers to our sense appetency, which should not be harassed by our emotional states. Simplicity of heart refers to our will, which should be entirely set toward God as its object. And the bond of love refers to our neighbor and the fellowship of charity to all with God. And so these are different ways in which we can talk about peace and, an, and a tranquility of order related to different types of objects. But because our focus on this retreat are the emotions or the passions, I want to focus on the interior peace that are related to our emotions or our passions. So being at peace with our emotions is definitely going to be a part of the pursuit of happiness. But we can pursue this type of peace in problematic ways. Now, in the ethics-obsessed Hellenistic period of antiquity, philosophers debated a lot about the goal of life, and they often argued for their version of ethics based on whether or not their ethics could bring them peace. And one of these schools emphasized a balance in our emotions as what constitutes that peace. We call this view uh, Epicureanism. So in the rest of this talk, I'm going to be focused on this ancient and then modern versions of Epicureanism to see how followers of this philosophy think we can achieve an interior peace with respect to our emotions. Now, Epicureanism viewed the goal of life, the end of life, as the pursuit of pleasure. They were called hedonists, coming from the Greek word for pleasure. But this pursuit of pleasure that was central to the Epicurean way of life is not exactly what you and I might think of as a way of pleasure, for Epicurus did not promote the unrestrained pursuit of things that please us. Rather, the goal of a pleasant life, in Epicurus's view, is a life that minimizes or excludes all pain. And so when we look at how the ancient Epicureans lived, they look pretty disciplined and nothing like the wild socialites we might have imagined when we first heard that they were hedonists. Epicureans um, do seem to look for a balanced life, and they have a pretty sophisticated uh, approach to pleasure in order to try to find the right balance that will help them to eliminate pain from their lives. And they distinguish between two different kinds of pleasure. They talk about kinetic pleasures, and they talk about static pleasures. Now, kinetic pleasures, the word kinetic comes from a word in Greek for motion. So kinetic pleasures are those based on some sort of activity. 
And as a result, they're often uh, accompanied or related to some sort of pain. So maybe there's a pain in the activity itself, like how strenuous athletic contests can cause physical and muscular pain. Maybe there is pain in the absence of that activity when we don't have it, like a desire for a particular kind of food that we can't have right now. Or maybe there is pain in the result of an activity, like maybe I was drinking too much and then the next day I have a bit of a headache. Or, um, and so it's, or, and there were many different ways in which we can talk about the relationship between activities that can be pleasurable, but also are associated with pain. So it's also notable that these pleasures, these kinetic pleasures, um, are, are associated specifically with things that we do. And so on, Epic, on Epicurus's view, these types of pleasures are to be avoided whenever possible, because the goal of life um, is to have only those things that give us pleasure and not pain. So because kinetic pleasures are often associated with pain, they should be avoided. Now, there are certain kinetic pleasures that are, of course, necessary, um, and these can't be avoided. We'll get to that in a moment. But before that, we'll look at the other type of pleasure. The other type of pleasure is a static pleasure. And these are pleasures that we can have in a stable way. They're not obtained in the doing of something. Once we have them, though, they're with us and we don't have to do anything to maintain them. It's hard to articulate what these might be, but they're, they're related to, they're often associated with acts of the mind, right? So that um, Epicurus talks about the pleasure of friendship, right? That just having these friendships um, and the memory of the friendships give a delight and a pleasure that cannot be taken away. Or the pleasure of even just any sort of knowledge, something that we love to contemplate and that will never leave us. And so these are the types of pleasures that he wants us to focus on. But Epicurus also gives us <clears throat> another division of pleasures that, uh, that he uses to diagnose what sorts of things to pursue and what to avoid. He talks about necessary and unnecessary desires. So necessary desires are those desires that, of course, help us to achieve some sort of well-being. Like we need to eat, you know, so we have a desire for food. Therefore, we do need to satisfy that because without food, we will die. We need to sleep for similar reasons, right? Now, some of these are obviously kinetic pleasures, but they are necessary and therefore permitted on this view. Then we have unnecessary desires. So these are desires that are generally additions um, to desires that we already have. We might talk about them as acquired tastes. You know, we, It's not just that we have a desire for food, but for a particular kind of food. Not just a desire for a drink, but a particular kind of drink. Um, or that we desire things that are outside of our control. Like we desire to have a good reputation. We want people to think well of us. We desire to have great wealth, that sort of thing. And so all of these are unnecessary because they go beyond the mere necessities that maintain the beating of our heart from one moment to the next. And so 
Um, if we pursue unnecessary desires, they also add into our lives unnecessary avenues of possible pain and sadness. And so on Epicurus's view, they ought to be avoided because they not only add pleasure, but they add the possibility of pain as well. And so for them, right, the ultimate goal of this philosophy is to achieve a life without disturbance, a life without pain, a kind of peace where, whereby we are not unnecessarily pained by life and we can just enjoy what we might call the simple pleasures of life. And while the can, Epicureanism, Epicureanism can seem abstemious on occasion, the promise of peace is what made it so attractive to people in antiquity. And so the goal then becomes one of, a, of attempting to achieve this balance and peace in one's life with respect to one's desires and needs. Now, there's more to tell about Epicureanism, but we have only so much time today. Uh, but for, and for our purposes, that's, I think, sufficient. So I want to then consider some modern versions or a modern version of Epicureanism um, that have a hold in our popular imagination. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the history of philosophy, you might expect me to begin a discussion of utilitarianism, which is a highly developed and intentional version of Epicureanism popular in contemporary ethics today. But while that philosophical movement is a significant inheritor of hedonism, I don't want to focus on it. I want to focus instead on a broader philosophical movement that is more intent on emotions in particular. And this popular uh, and philosophical concept that I want to look at is the concept of well-being. Well-being. So the idea of well-being we might more frequently come across in pop psychology or in like uh, literature about how to live a healthier lifestyle. But it does also have philosophical connotations as well. And in the philosophical sense, well-being is used to describe a state of affairs for an individual that relates to um, obtaining things that are good for that person. So something, something promotes well-being when it's good for a person. And one has, one has well-being when one has access to the use and, or access and use of the things that are good for me. And one does not have well-being when those things are uh, unavailable and when also there are things that are bad for me that are present as well. So practitioners of this contemporary version of Epicureanism will take this notion of well-being and build a life where psychological well-being and emotional well-being take center stage. It's all about creating the psychological and emotional well-being. This means discovering what desires and emotions one has and focusing on shaping a lifestyle that allows one to achieve the necessary requirements that are good for having a balance between our various perceived and emotional psychological needs. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem like a bad thing at all. It actually seems kind of great. But 
that's because we're only looking at it from a distance, from a more general perspective. But when we get down into the weeds, things become murkier and more troublesome because we have to determine what psychological and emotional well-being is going to look like for us as individuals. And most modern versions of this do not take the abstemious Epicurean perspective of antiquity, seeking static pleasures and avoiding kinetic pleasures. Rather, the idea actually intends, oftentimes, will include the possibility about, about building a life geared towards kinetic pleasures and unnecessary pleasures. I want to be a type of person who is well-known. I want to be the type of person who is wealthy. You know, I want to be the type of person who does this sort of thing and to build my life around achieving emotional perfection with respect to that. And so the idea is that many sorts of emotional patterns can produce well-being. All that you need to do is to have a sufficiently ordered life that balances out our passions um, in a way that allows us to achieve them as frequently as possible. So maybe we want to have a life that is focused on love and family. So we search for a sort of well-being that allows us to spend as much time with our family and to love people as much as we can. Sounds great. Maybe we want to have a life that is perfected in the pursuing of a career, right? That we want to achieve high excellence in a particular uh, hobby or a sport or a pastime or even in a job that we want to be at the height of that particular field, All right? We can deal with the passions that are associated with that as well. And so there are many ways in which we can at least perceive a life that looks good, that does this sort of emotional balancing act. But here's the thing, just uh, on its surface, well-being doesn't limit the sort of things that you can do, that you can make the goal of your life. And philosophers have noted that just because something may be ordered for your well-being doesn't mean that it's moral. In a more benign case, maybe you have a passion for video games and want to order your life to the fulfillment of excellence in a particular game. And so you become so good at it that you can become a professional gamer, right? And then get paid for your efforts. Or, you know, and this seems insipid, but it doesn't particularly seem moral, but it is a possibility. But there are also some more sinister possibilities here as well. So, for instance, take the individual who delights maybe in stealing from others, making them cry, finding a way to hurt them. But to do it in a way, right, that you get away from it, get away with it as much as possible. It is possible to order one's life towards this goal, causing pain to others so that I may have delight, and to establish this as a sense of well-being and a good for me to pursue. This can fall under the heading of a life that has well-being, if it's good for me because I like to hurt others. It seems pretty clear, right, that there's something wrong with that, um, something inherently immoral. And that, that's a problem. That's a problem. And so <clears throat> that last point, right, must be emphasized. 
And it turns out that whether you are a modern person in pursuit of well-being or if you're an ancient Epicurean hedonist, right, it's not following these ways of life is not following an ethics in the sense of trying to become a moral person like an Aristotelian or a Thomist might look to. And it turns out then that when we go back to the idea of peace as a tranquility of order, there are many ways in which we can get this tranquility of order, which we can get at least a semblance of peace. But just because peace may be necessary for happiness, it's not sufficient for happiness. And we can see that in the way that you can have a tranquility of order without having goodness. Because on the Aristotelian intimistic perspective, happiness requires goodness as an essential feature of it. And actually, and so in happiness, it requires also that we be absorbed in the good, right? Remember that our desires and our passions are wrapped up in our intellect and in our will. And that when we will something, we will it because we see it as good, as good. And our passions, and we affirm our passions and we pursue our passions because in some way, the intellect and the will pursue it as good. And so the notion of goodness is wrapped up in the notion of assenting to something and to pursue happiness in a fundamental way, whether we want to realize it or not. So that too is important to kind of keep in mind. That whether even if we may kid ourselves about how we can have a tranquility of order without goodness, doesn't mean that we don't actually desire goodness. So one thing that the idea of well-being uh, teaches us, of course, is, is it teaches people in our society not only to pursue a life of emotions, but to identify themselves with those passions and with those emotions as well. Right? In order to suppress the desire for goodness, you then have to give a new purpose to your life and a new identity to yourself which then becomes wrapped up in the emotions that you have, in the passions that you have chosen as the good for your life. And so this goal, right, now, so we can then order our lives and order our identities around seeking whatever goal it is that we decided is going to be the center of our well-being. But the problem is, of course, that these goals cannot help but be fleeting and ultimately self-defeating. And I think this, this idea of the fleetingness of one's kind of intentional well-being that's separated from the good can be seen in the idea, uh, in kind of a theme that you'll come across in movies and in books, that of a not-so-happy, happy ending. Right? And we see this very clearly in films that come in different series, as well as in certain types of plays. So I'm thinking here of something like, say, a James Bond film, right? In order for a film to be satisfying, there has to be, normally, a happy ending of sorts, right? So in the Bond films, it's the bad guy gets, gets defeated, 
the world is saved and Bond gets the girl, all right? And they move off into the sunset. But if you want to have another movie, something has to go wrong, right? So what was a happy ending at the end of one movie gets broken at the beginning of the next one. This is how you motivate a series of movies. But, you know, the reason why that seems plausible to us, the reason why we can actually have movies that look like this is because we see it happen in life all the time, right? I mean, the clearest example of this on a day-to-day -day basis is the sort of happy ending of weddings, is that there's going to be such a focus in our society on getting to the wedding day. And then the wedding day is this kind of like ultimate paragon of what you are ordering your life to. And then the next day, it's just like you and the other person and all their faults and failings as well as their joys. And then realizing maybe that wasn't a happy ending. It's also a beginning. A beginning that can, of course, go towards happiness, but may not necessarily. Um, something you have to work with, you have to work on. There's also a, a, actually an interesting take on this as well in the musical by Stephen Sondheim, Into the Woods, and uh, which is a, kind of a, a melange of, it takes the, a melange of characters from different fairy stories. Um, and by the way, I should say, I, I actually put Stephen Sondheim into this talk before I realized that he had died. Actually, I wrote this talk, finished it the same day that he died. I, I remember writing this and I looked and I said, I wonder if Stephen Sondheim is still alive. And I said, oh, he is. Then two hours later, I got the notice, we got the notice that, oh, nope, he died today. Oh, well, God rest him. He was a great, uh, a great writer and musical composer. But anyway, Into the Woods, right? We have, it's a weird story because the first half of it takes these traditional fairy tales, right? And they all go into the woods and then they do their usual fairy tale thing. And then the happy ending comes, but it's only in the middle of the play. Then comes the second half when the happy endings fall apart and characters begin to die or disappear that you would never expect. And I think that's, that's an interesting take on life, right? The fact that the fairy tale ending of our chosen dreams are very fragile. They're very fragile because they collapse. They collapse under the weight of vice, the weight of sin, and the fact that they are really not strong enough to uphold a life at all. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas remarks that temporal peace is directed to the quiet and calm enjoyment of temporal things, with the result that it sometimes helps a person to sin, right? He says it can help people to do evil. And so he quotes then from the Book of Wisdom, they live in strife due to ignorance, and they call such great evils peace. But these things are not real peace. They are easily disturbed, and the balance is easily upset. And this shows the weakness of contemporary Epicureanism under the guise of well-being. It seeks after an emotional life that is at best fleeting and at worst unachievable. Now I should note, of course, that the classical version of Epicureanism is structured to avoid the fleeting character of emotional, of emotional peace um, that looks, looks for satisfaction only 
in, in kinetic pleasures. They focus on static pleasures because presumably they can't be taken away. But even if it were possible to build one's life around mere static pleasures, and I really think it's hard to do this, um, it creates rather a more insipid life. It makes the practitioner a seeker after things that are safe, isolated, antisocial, and ironically, deeply unsatisfying. But there are people that attempt this lifestyle. And again, it, they do it by trying to identify themselves with the goal, with whatever goal it is that they've chosen, with whatever static pleasure it is that they have chosen as the end of their lives. And the problem here, again, is, of course, when we begin to wrap up our identities in our chosen goals, whether they be static pleasures or kinetic pleasures, whether they be more stable or less stable, if somehow these things that we have chosen at our, as our ends are lost, we not only lose our peace, but we, we feel like we've almost lost our very selves. And so there's a great danger, too, with identifying ourselves with achievable goals and ordering our lives around those goals to find a semblance of peace. Because the loss of that peace is not just a loss of an emotional state, but is experienced as a loss of self. And that would be terrible indeed. So turning away from that problematic view, then we must remember what real happiness consists of in the Christian life. Real happiness, real peace, consists not in a balanced emotional life, but in union with Jesus Christ. Now, we should note, of course, right, that Christian life does promise emotional and psychological well-being, but it's not guaranteed in this life. It's guaranteed in life with Jesus Christ. As St. Thomas Aquinas also writes, that the peace of the saints is directed to eternal goods. The meaning, therefore, is uh, of the phrase, not as the world gives peace, do I give you peace. That is not for the same end. The world gives peace so exterior goods can be possessed undisturbed. But I give peace so that you can obtain eternal things. So says St. Thomas in his commentary on St. John, lecture numbers, number seven. The orientation, uh, lecture number seven of Chapter 14. So the, the orientation of the Christian towards eternal goods and eternal life is key. Because these, if they are truly eternal, and they are in Jesus Christ, can never be taken away. And so in a way, of course, right, the Christian life does fall under the umbrella of well, well, a life that is, has well-being. But it's one that also has goodness, that has stability, that has complete satisfaction in a way that we could never lose. Because in eternal happiness, all that we desire is fulfilled and all other desires are put away. And so recognizing this, though, that we can only achieve this in eternal life is also important because then we won't make the mistake of trying to find eternal peace here.
And if we do that, then we also have a hope of tasting that eternal peace. Because if we think that we can have eternal peace here, we will always, of course, be mistaken and mistake eternal peace for passing peace. But if we remember, we won't have peace until we come into eternal paradise. The Lord will allow us to taste, to scent from afar, that great peace that he is promising to us beyond this life and in eternity. But then how do we approach this peace? Well, we must approach it by living on and emphasizing the virtue of hope. We talk, of course, about the, vir the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And there's a lot of important emphasis on the virtue of faith and coming to know God, and the virtue of love as being the way of union with God. But in this life, we also need to have a very strong emphasis on the virtue of hope. Hoping in things that are not yet obtained, hoping in things that are not yet seen fully, but yet trusting in the one who promises them. That will help us to not seek satisfaction in this life and to wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this, and if we do that, this will make us less susceptible to the temptation of the world, the temptations to try to organize our lives around passing things but rather we organize our lives around eternal things. And with that in mind, we can endure whatever the world comes to us, whoever brings our way, because nothing that the world gives us can take away our peace, because it's held in the strong and unyielding hands of God himself. And this is the peace promised us by our Lord in John 14, 27. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you, do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. These words are a promise. Yes, we may have to suffer here below, but the one who promises them to us also suffered. And yet he is also the one who had the beatific vision in this life and has it in all eternity and wants to share it with us so that we may be with him in all eternity. And so we follow after our Lord in hope, in expectation, knowing that the one who promises will give us, give us back even greater than we can expect, trusting and hoping in the joy and the peace of eternal life. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have time for questions. All right. Um, there are, okay, so the question is how... How is it, we're looking at how we have a proper ordering, and the question was, how can we then, what kind of, in what way do the liturgy and the sacraments help to have a proper ordering in our lives? So the answer to that is a lot, <laughs> a lot of ways, right? So the first and foremost, of course, is grace, right? Because in the gifts of grace that we receive through the sacraments, right, God works in us, with us, to order our lives. So especially in this in the sacrament of confession, right, we confess our disordered uh, our disordered activities, right, 
not only asking to be healed of them, but also asking for graces to resist falling into those temptations in the future and to be healed of the disordered passions so that we can move forward, right? And then, of course, there's also a healing in the reception of the Eucharist itself. There in, in the sacrament of confirmation, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit um, and brought, you know, under the grace of the Holy Spirit more clearly. And so there are a lot of ways, especially when the sacraments, by, through, uh, through the imparting of grace, that, of course, is meant to better order us. And the liturgy helps, especially when it's done well, by giving us a visual signal to keep our minds on the things of God, right? They, when the, litur the liturgy can, on occasion, hopefully on many occasions, entrance us. And if we allow ourselves to be entranced by it, then that will help refocus our attention, reorder our desires to think about and to consider eternal things. Of course, it is possible to mistake um, a beautiful liturgy for the liturgy of heaven itself. So we ought to avoid that, right? Even a very poorly done liturgy can still do these things. Um, but it, it is, of course, all meant as a, a way to keep our eyes on the prize, to focus on eternal life and to focus on God. And that itself will keep it properly ordered. Because if you know the end, then you will have a better idea of how to order everything towards that end. What are signs of attaining, of attaining eternal peace? So that's hard. It depends on the individual, um, how one experiences it, because we all have different needs, right? So here's one way that I think we can tell that we are on the way to eternal peace. All right. Um, you know, in the great, in the great, in the tradition of the spiritual life, you know, they talk about different dark nights of different dark nights of the soul. You know, there are the three different stages of the spiritual life. And in between them, there are different nights of the soul in which we are, our pleasures are kind of taken away from us and, and the dark night of the spirit. Or, and then there's, a, and then there's a, an even a sense that our faith is taken away from us in the dark night of the soul. And whatever dark night we're experiencing, I think we can tell that we have the beginnings of faith when, or we have the beginnings of peace when despite how we feel, we can't help but believe. We can't help but hold on to the gift that God has given to us. And, you know, I, I've, I've frequently heard people say, you know, Father, I, I'm just having trouble believing. And then I point out to them, do you have trouble believing or do you have trouble feeling like you believe? Because you're asking me this right now. And then they all often realize, oh, right, I do believe. I've just lost that feeling that I used to associate with belief. And so if we can recognize in those moments that there is something like a rock subtly beneath the surfaces of our awareness on which we are grounded and in which keeps us rooted in the faith despite the kind of movements and the motions in our lives, that's a recognition. Oh, wait, that's where peace is going to lie, right? No matter what comes our way, no matter what's hurting me, right? I can't help but believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of rock of faith in which I need to hold on to, to grasp onto. So I think that's an indication. But it also shows us, right, that it's not always a felt thing, but it is a stabilizing feature in our lives. Does that help? Yeah, 
So the question is, how, what is the Epicurean perspective on God? And the, and the answer is um, material, materialistic insofar as they even believe in God. Epicureans were infamous in antiquity for being atheists. Although you probably would have seen them at pagan sacrifices offering pagan worship. So if the pagan deities, if they believed in the pagan deities, they would have been just like superhumans to them, also material. Um, but, you know, they're, of course, like, you know, Epicurus actually gives arguments for why you shouldn't fear the gods. Right. Um, and so he actually is more agnostic. He's like, we look, we can't know if there are gods or not. So let's just not care about it. His point is ignore them and just try to get this emotional balance. Right. And so. That's why um, Epicureanism in all, and especially in the, in the modern age and in the, even in the postmodern age is attractive, right? Because it's intentionally meant to be, to give you a way to live your life without reference to a God or to a deity. Um, and it's explicitly materialistic and atomistic. Um, they are uh, successors of Democritean atomism with a little bit more sophistication. Thank you.